Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and I'm really thrilled to see all of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. I want to make sure that uh, all of you who have not yet seen our exhibitions, uh, four of which opened in the last three weeks, just in the last three weeks, return during regular museum hours. On our first floor, actually, we have a newly opened exhibition, which... Uh, is a, a different take on narrating the Civil War. It's a civil war, but it's the story is all told through textiles, um, quilts, bandages, uniforms. Uh, it's a it's a really rather stunning show, uh, very visceral show, and uh, I know that particularly those of you here this evening will will find a lot of interest in it. So um, do make sure that you you return and visit that exhibition. Uh, on our second floor, we have a great new exhibition of photographs taken by Bill Cunningham, the New York Times photographer in the 1970s. Uh, gives you a real flavor of the city then and also of the great architecture and his particular spin on uh, historic preservation. We also have opened the second in our newest series of Audubon, uh, Audubon watercolors drawn from our unique collection. Uh, they're all water birds and uh, it's Fantastic. You'll love it. And the Black Fives, finally, an exhibition about the basketball teams that, um, all black basketball teams that played before the NBA was integrated in 1950. I also want to make sure, as always, that anyone here who's not yet a member of the New York Historical Society um, knows that he or she should join. It's um, <laughs> we're a great organization, and it's your support that really helps us to do all the work that... Um, that we do. My colleagues can help you on the way out this evening if you're not yet a member. Tonight's program, Great Battles of the Civil War, Shiloh, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for the great work that they do um, and their terrific generosity in enabling us to bring such fine historians and writers to this auditorium. Uh, I also want to thank all the members of our Chairman's Council who are in the audience tonight gearing up for our annual weekend with history, which takes place next weekend. And I would also like to recognize a very special friend here, um, tremendous, I think I'm too excited about his next book on Grant Roncherno, and thank him for the great contributions he's made to history and to us. And I am very excited about about the book that he's writing, which is why I'm flopping over my words. Um, tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. Standing microphones will be to my left and to my right in the aisles. We, uh, we do that so that uh, um, everyone in the audience can hear your question, and so can the speakers on the stage. So do you get ready to stand behind the microphones at question time. Uh, after the program, there will be a book signing uh, with tonight's speakers. Their books are available for purchase in our museum store, uh, so please do join us for that. We are absolutely thrilled to welcome James M. McPherson back to the New York Historical Society. Dr. McPherson is the George Henry Davis 1886 Professor of American History Emeritus at Princeton University and one of the country's preeminent Civil War scholars. He's the best-selling author of numerous books on the Civil War, including Battle Cry of Freedom, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1989. He's a two-time winner of the Lincoln Prize for his books, 
tried by war, Abraham Lincoln as commander-in-chief, and for cause and comrades, why men fought in the Civil War. His most recent book is War on the Waters, the Union and Confederate Navies, 1861 to 1865. We're also very pleased indeed to welcome back John F. Marzaluk, the Giles Distinguished Professor of History Emeritus at Mississippi State University and the Executive Director and Managing Editor of the Ulysses S. Grant Association, which has published 32 volumes of the papers of Ulysses S. Grant. He's the author or editor of 13 books, including Sherman, A Soldier's Passion for Order, which was a finalist for the Lincoln Prize, and Sherman's Other War. In 2004, the Mississippi Historical Society presented him with its highest award, the BLC Wales Award for National Distinction in History. Our moderator this evening is Harold Holzer, the Roger Hertog Fellow at the New York Historical Society and chairman of the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Foundation. Mr. Holzer is the author, co-author, or editor of more than 40 books on Lincoln and the Civil War, and in 2008, he was awarded the National Humanities Medal. He served, of course, as chief historian on our own exhibition, Lincoln and New York, and also as content consultant to the Steven Spielberg film, Lincoln. Uh, his latest book, The Civil War in 50 Objects, is that your latest book? Oh. <laughs> There will be another one, though, soon. <laughs> His latest book, The Civil War in 50 Objects, tells the story of the Civil War through objects in our very own New York historical collection. As always, before we begin, I want to ask that you please make sure that anything that makes noise, like a cell phone, is switched off. And now, please join me in welcoming our speakers to the stage. Well, it's always, um, it's always good to be back um, at the Historical Society for our great battles of the Civil War series, even though I'm beginning to think that Jim, John, and I have fought this war longer than they did uh, <laughs> in the 19th century. Um, but my fellow historians are game, and um, you keep showing interest, so we're delighted to, to come back and do these programs. We have a few more battles lined up, so... Stay tuned. But right now, <clears throat> what we're going to do tonight, as you, you no doubt know from the program, is we're going to break away from our recent sesquicentennial focus in which we've been taking stock of many of these battles on their 150th anniversary. Um, we're going to step back a bit, in other words, from 1864 to do something perhaps we should have done before, but no time like the present. 152 years ago, this coming week, um, spring was in the air, I guess, as it is in New York, finally. Um, soldiers were itching for a fight. Little did they know. Wanted to get out of winter quarters. So it's also fitting and proper that we do this because it's the 150th anniversary last month of, the, of Ulysses S. Grant's elevation to the command of all Union armies. And if you can point to one early reason for this, uh, one early event that set the stage for that fateful promotion that revealed Grant in all his determination and his courage and his tenacity and uh, uh, self-confidence, it was probably the battle we're going to explore, the Battle of Shiloh. So 
John, let's, uh, let's start with you in your executive director of the Grant Association mode. Um, give us, and I'm, I'm going to skip. I'm usually more organized with PowerPoint, so I apologize. I say I'm going to skip. That would help. There. Let's talk about what Grant has been doing in the month leading up, you know, late 61, uh, <clears throat> through this new calendar year of 1862. What accomplishments, what setbacks, um, what is he doing and what is he prepared for? Okay. That should take me about an hour. That'll, <laughs> that'll, that'll take care of it all. But seriously, um, 1862 and end of 1861, actually. It's not been particularly good times for, uh, for Ulysses S. Grant, uh, primarily because, I think, because of the relationship he has with his commanding officer, a fellow by the name of Henry W. Halleck. Uh, Halleck doesn't think much of Grant, and it isn't so much that he's jealous of Grant, as some historians argue. I argue that the reason he doesn't like Grant is because Grant's not a very good general. And Grant's not a very good general, Halleck says, because he doesn't fill out the paperwork correctly. <laughs> and the result is that he may win these victories, but doggone it, you're supposed to fold orders a certain way, and you're supposed <laughs> to say a certain thing in those, in those particular orders. But what actually happens, very briefly, uh, Grant does something very significant. The Confederacy's established a defense line, if you can call it that, from the Mississippi River to the Appalachian Mountains with certain strong points along the way. And a couple of those strong points are Fort, Forts Henry and Forts, Fort Henry and Fort Donelson. And it's Grant who says to, uh, to Halleck, I think we ought to attack, take these, and that'll open the way into the Confederacy. Halleck's not so sure about it. He finally agrees. It's a long, involved process. Grant actually does this. He captures Fort Henry. He captures Fort Donaldson. Right there. Right on our map. Right on the map. Right. Right. And he breaks this, this, this defense line that the Confederacy has. And he forces Albert Sidney Johnson, who Jefferson Davis believes is the great general, uh, forces him and other Confederate troops to pull back. And they pull back where? To Corinth, Mississippi, uh, where, very important place actually, strategically, because two major railroads intersect there. In fact, if you go there today, you can see those two railroads literally crossing each other uh, in Corinth. And um, uh, Charlie Rowland, who some of you know is a very well-known historian now in his 90s, but he loved to quote that Confederate who referred to Corinth as the vertebrae of the Confederacy because of that, the spine of the Confederacy, I guess would be a good way of putting it. And so this is where Johnston and the Confederates are, and this is what Grant and the Union troops are going to be going after, but we'll leave that to go on for later on. Charlie Rowland is a, is a treasure. I, is. I'll tell one Albert Sidney Johnston, Charlie Rowland story. Do I dare? Do you know sure. the story? Sure. So uh, he's a Southern gentleman. He must be about four foot six by this time. Yeah. And um, 
he still speaks, you know, he barely goes over the microphone at this point. And <laughs> someone said to him that um, while Grant was making some of these early advances, Albert Sidney Johnston uh, was flitting about uh, Tennessee. And he said, sir, I know Albert Sidney Johnston. <laughs> and Albert Sidney Johnston did not flit. Flit, that's right. <laughs> Well, but I want to I ask Jim about Johnston, because he's going to figure a great deal in the story as we get up to Shiloh. And we, we all feel we know about Grant, but tell us about the opposition. Well, Albert Sidney Johnston uh, was an old friend of Jefferson Davis. They had been at West Point together. Uh, Davis thought that Johnston was the foremost general in the Confederacy. At the outset of the Civil War, Johnston was stationed in the United States Army in California. Uh, he was originally uh, from Kentucky. He had fought for Texas in the Texas Revolution, and then he had fought against uh, Mexico in the Mexican War. He was stationed in California, and he decided to go with the Confederacy. And uh, he came across the country dodging Apaches, dodging Union patrols, arrives in Richmond in September of 1861, and Jefferson Davis immediately sends him out to Kentucky to take charge of this Confederate defensive position all the way from the Cumberland Gap in the Appalachian Mountains to Missouri, which Johnson was supposed to hold with somewhere between 30 and 40,000 men, a line about 300 miles long. Uh, there's correspondence between Davis and Johnston about how can I do this? I mean, the, the troops don't have arms. Uh, many of them are with squirrel rifles or with shotguns. They're green as grass. Uh, the enemy has greater resources than we do. Uh, and Davis said, I sent you out there, do it. I, I have confidence in you, you can do it. Uh, Johnston actually comes up with a, with a um, pretty good idea of how to do it, which was to send out um, disinformation, I guess, news leaks, about how many men he had. Uh, three or four times as many as he really had. This actually convinces William Tecumseh Sherman, yes. who is in charge of the Union Army in the Kentucky area, that he's outnumbered uh, by the Confederates, uh, that it was going to take uh, 100,000, maybe 200,000 men of Union forces to carry out this operation. Uh, Sherman actually suffers a, uh, something of a nervous breakdown. Uh, and John doesn't to, like to be reminded of that yeah. <laughs> story. But. It has to be reassigned uh, uh, until, and, and he's really out of the war, in effect, until Shiloh, mm -hmm. uh, and he recovers yeah. at Shiloh. It's good that it was over the winter, because there wasn't much going on, not too much going on. Sherman's leave of absence. Yeah, basically, uh, he takes charge of the Union barracks at Jefferson in um, St. Louis, Benton, uh, near, uh, near St. Louis, but in effect, he's on the shelf for a while. Uh, and um, Johnston finally trains something of an army, but of course it gets breached at Fort Henry and at Fort Donelson. Uh, he comes under enormous, and he, loses, he has to retreat from Nashville. It's the first Confederate state capital to fall in February 1862 because it's now vulnerable to the Union Navy coming up the Cumberland River. Uh, and Johnston comes under enormous criticism from the Confederate press and from the Confederate public. Uh, Jefferson Davis reasserts his confidence in Johnston. Uh, General P.G.T. Beauregard, who's having something of a feud with Jefferson Davis in Virginia, 
is sent out to uh, Kentucky, uh, to Tennessee really now, uh, to Corinth, uh, in northern Mississippi, uh, to um, reinforce Johnston. Johnston has 40,000 troops concentrated at Corinth, and they decide that having been rocked back on the defense, uh, lost, for, lost control of uh, um, both the Cumberland and Tennessee rivers, a kind of daggers pointed into the heartland of the South, uh, that they're going to launch a counteroffensive uh, and to attack the concentration of Union forces at Pittsburgh Landing, about 20 miles north of Corinth on the Tennessee River, before uh, Major General J uh, Don Carlos Buell's Army of the Ohio can reinforce Grant to carry on uh, to carry out this offensive to capture Corinth. So Johnston is uh, is is going to cast everything on uh, this one gamble uh, to counterattack to hit Grant at uh, Pittsburgh Landing before Buell can reinforce him uh, and recover everything that has been mm -hmm. lost in the past three months. Uh, at Fort Henry, Fort Donelson, and, and Nashville. So Johnston, um, uh, uh, with some trepidation about how successful this is going to be, but a determination to, uh, to do everything he can to not only uh, recover the lost territory for the Confederacy, but also to retrieve his rather uh, tarnished reputation. And John, where is... Didn't your, I mean, you've written about all these people. You must be very conflicted at this moment. But um, Halleck has sort of kept Grant at Donaldson for a while, right? And he doesn't, tell, tell us what Grant's movements are as he approaches um, the Shiloh area. Yeah, well, what, what does happen is, I think Jim uh, made the point that uh, Pittsburgh Landing, Shiloh Church, uh, is going to be the place where all these Union troops are going to come together and mass together. And once they do that, and that's Don Carlos Buell and, and Sherman and Grant and others, and Halleck is going to come from St. Louis, and as overall commander, he's going to command this massed group of, of, of soldiers, and they're going to march down against Corinth and capture this, uh, this key place. The, the issue, however, is, of course... Why was, why was Pittsburgh Landing chosen? Well, it was chosen because it's high above the Tennessee River, uh, and this is a very wet spring. It hasn't been a great winter, but it's been a really wet spring, a lot of flooding, and Sherman actually is asked by Grant to find a place, and he finds Pittsburgh Landing, and he writes to Grant, and he says, this is great. He said, it's a nice flat area. He said, it, it'll be great, it won't be wet, we can camp a lot of people here, and there are decent roads to Corinth that we can then use to, uh, use to attack. But then, of course, with the idea being that they're going to attack. All they're there for, they're not there to defend anything. Shiloh isn't important at all. Uh, they're there simply to wait for Don Carlos Buell to come. And then once he comes, Halleck will come, and they'll move toward, uh, uh, toward Corinth. But as Jim pointed out, Albert Sidney Johnson says, I don't think this is such a good idea to just wait here. As Jim said, he's been under a lot of pressure. We're going to attack them, surprise them, attack them, and defeat them. 
Well, there's some question about that, of course. Uh, Grant and Sherman both believe completely that Johnson wouldn't be that stupid. You're not going to leave that fortified place at Corinth and attack in the open. No, they'll wait for us there, and, and we'll, we'll come together and we'll make the attack. The issue, interestingly enough, is again what Jim said. When Sherman was in Kentucky, he was afraid that the Confederates were going to overwhelm his, his troops. And so he did take a lot of, he went through a lot of difficulty, anxiety, depression, etc. cetera. Uh, and so now when he's at Shiloh at Pittsburgh Landing and people come to him and say, I think there's Confederates out there. Other officers would say, he'd say, you've got to be crazy. There are no officers out there. Because that's what they said about him, about him in, uh, in Kentucky. So he refuses to believe that this can happen. Grant also believes that the Confederates will never attack. So Grant and Sherman reinforce what will turn out to be an erroneous idea that will not be attack, an attack on Shiloh, uh, Pittsburgh landing. They don't, he, the Union forces don't entrench, right? That's not That's right. Grant's way. Yeah. He says well, his men need drilling, not digging or something. Right. Yeah. I mean, the idea is there's no, there is no entrenchment there. And both Sherman and Grant argue that if you entrench troops, and this was the belief at this time of the war, you take away their edge. You take away their offensive mindedness. And besides, Grant and Sherman say, these are all green troops and they're right. They and they need more training, more drill than they need time digging in, in the earth. So there is no, there are no entrenchments. Later on in the war, the soldiers on their own will figure out, hey, we got to entrench every time they stop. The first thing they do is they take their shovels out and they start digging in. It's not happening at this, at this early time of the war. So is it fair to say the objectives are Union forces have coalesced to find a place to reach out to other parts of the West, but the South, right. and Confederate forces have gathered together to stop them. Right. Who has the advantage? Jim, John, both of you, who has the advantage at this moment? Well, in terms of numbers, uh, Johnson's army was about 40,000 men, and Grant was commanding about 40,000 men. And didn't Johnson say he would attack Grant if he had a million men? That's right. Yes. Uh, and Buell uh, had somewhere in the neighborhood of, I guess, about 35,000 men. He had sent one division into northern Alabama. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so that when Buell reinforced Grant, there would be about 70,000 Union forces, and Halleck would come and take command of them, and they would, uh, they would uh, uh, attack the Confederates and capture Columbus, uh, capture Corinth. Uh, so the numbers, the numbers were about equal uh, in the actual battle. Um, Lou Wallace, with one of the divisions commanded by Grant, was at a place farther down, that is north on the Tennessee River called Crump's Landing, uh, to guard against the possibility of a Confederate cavalry raid against the Union rear and so on. So Grant had only about 35,000 men at uh, Pittsburgh Landing when the Confederates attacked him on the morning of April 6th uh, with about 40,000 men. But Buell had almost arrived. In fact, the day before, mm -hmm. April 5th, Buell had turned up at Grant's headquarters which was seven miles downriver at Savannah. I'm not sure if Savannah is on the map. We'll go back to our map. Um, yeah, Savannah is mm -hmm. there on the map. 
Uh, and Buell turns up at Grant's headquarters at the head of his troops. So the, the, um, the reinforcements are about to arrive. And when they do, of course, uh, that army will outnumber the Confederates. One thing, if I just add uh, something that when I used to teach, teach this, one of the things that students have the hardest thing, and I, do, I will do this too, uh, have to remember the Tennessee River flows north in this area. So actually, even though Grant and Wallace are north of Pittsburgh Landing, it's actually downriver. And so you will sometimes even, you know, hear well-known historians will make the mistake and say, you know, just the opposite. So just if you take a look at this map, you'll see two parallel rivers flowing yep. from Fort Henry and Fort Donelson. The one, and they both flow northward into the Ohio River in the area around Paducah. Uh, and the reason the Confederates had forts at Fort Donelson and Fort Henry is the rivers are very close together yeah. again, so those forts can be mutually supporting. Uh, but they both flow northward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So downriver is <laughs> up, up on the river. map. Up the map, that's right, yeah. It's complicated. Yeah. So um, 152 years ago this weekend, um, I'm always surprised... Um, like Grant was surprised. Yes, <laughs> like Grant. Well, wasn't Johnston, though, Johnson was doing, a, a, the Confederates allegedly had inferior weapons, so there were lots of test firings going on. Yeah. And Beauregard said to Johnston, um, we've got to stop this because we're going to remove the element of surprise. Right. So people heard all this through the, you know, yeah. at night or wherever, the, whenever the test firing was going on. How do we explain that on the first day of Shiloh, it was such a surprise? Well, what ha- what's happening, actually, it, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing. I think part of it is some of the things we've talked about. But there were reconnaissance troops going out pretty regularly during this time, and they'd run into Confederates. But they believed those were just Confederates who were doing reconnaissance during this same particular time. And In fact, Sherman writes to Grant, one of his letters, he says, oh, the, the Confederates are very saucy out there. Well, they were more than saucy. They were actually coming in their, in their full number. And so when, when the Union troops heard the firing, and they did, they thought it was just some of these recon people that are out there and they're running into some of the Union people who are out there looking around. And the result is they don't expect there to be any Confederates there. It, it is it's one of those things when... When you might say, you know, heard this expression, don't confuse me with the facts, my mind's made up. I think Grant and Sherman, their minds were made up. And where was Grant and where was Sh- Grant was not there yet. No. He's Sh- in Savannah, yeah. seven, Savannah, seven miles yeah. downriver north. Yeah. But it takes That's where his headquarters, the reason he was there is that's, uh, that's where Buell was coming. Mm-hmm. That's yes. where the right. Right. Army of the Ohio was going to turn up at Savannah. But it takes him a couple of hours when the battle is joined, it takes him a couple of hours to get there, right? Yeah. Well, Buell doesn't actually get there across the river from Pittsburgh Landing until late afternoon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And his first brigades begin crossing over while the battle is still going on. Yeah. And Grant had hurt himself, right? Didn't he have fallen? Hurt? Well, yes, he was. His horse on, fell on him or something? Yeah. Yes. The, the night he, was raining. He was on crutches, yeah. Yeah, he was on crutches, and uh, uh, he had, and which is an amazing thing because Grant. Is a, is a wonderful horseman. In fact, he held the record for the highest jump at West Point, I think, almost the end of the 19th century. But in this particular case, it was 
very rainy. The weather is awful during this time, by the way. And his horse slid in the dark and fell over and landed on his ankle so he could barely walk. And, and so he's on crutches. He's on crutches, yeah. And so when the attack comes, he's got to get from Savannah, some 10 miles or so away, and he's got to get there and he's trying to talk to all his units and he's trying to talk to all, all his commanders and all, and he's hobbling, he's hobbling around. But this is one of the reasons, I think, why he and Sherman uh, get to develop this friendship and this trust even more than, than it had been before, because everything that Grant saw of Sherman was positive. In fact, he later says in his memoirs, once I talked to Sherman, saw what he was doing, I didn't have to deal with him at all. I could deal with the, with the other generals. And Sherman says when he saw Grant and saw how determined he was, uh, again, he said, that was it. I was convinced that this guy knew what he was doing. So Shiloh brings these two people together. Which is a fateful event in itself. Exactly. It, it's, but tell us about it. So the Confederates want to push the Union forces into the swampy area, right? Right. So what happens that first day? Jim, why don't you start with... Well, the Confederate battle plan was to attack the Union left in order to sever it from Pittsburgh Landing and from its uh, connection with the Tennessee River and drive them back from the river into a kind of swampy area and, and, a, and a creek. And as John said, this has been a very wet spring. So the river is high. Uh, all of the tributaries uh, leading into the river are high. There's, uh, the wetlands are, are, are soaked. Uh, and so the idea was to uh, cut them off from the river and drive them into this swampy area and capture or destroy the army if possible. Um, Beauregard is Johnston's second in command. Uh, he's so um, upset by the fact that it's taken the Confederates three days rather than the planned one day to march from Corinth to um, Pittsburgh Landing and by all this noise from the Confederates yeah. firing their guns uh, that he said, well, the enemy is going to be ready for That'd us. Ready, yeah. uh, we should call the whole thing off. Uh, Johnson said, uh, I'd attack them if they were. A yeah. uh, and as, as he gives the final orders on the night of April 5th, uh, he said, gentlemen, tomorrow we shall water our horses in the Tennessee River. Uh, what happens, though, <laughs> is that the initial attack by the Confederates uh, against Prentiss's division and Sherman's division, I, we should point out that Sherman was commanding one of the five divisions. Yeah. Uh, in the Army of the Tennessee. Well, it wasn't yet called the Army of the yeah. Tennessee, yeah. Uh, but it's the core of what became the Army of the Tennessee. Um, and Sherman was, was commanding one of the divisions, a very green division. I believe in Sherman's division, none of the soldiers had previously seen combat. That wasn't true of all of Grant's troops, but it was true of Sherman's uh, division. And uh, Benjamin Prentiss's division also was consisted of green troops, and they were the two... Confederate uh, Union divisions camped furthest toward the enemy. So they were the two that were hit first by this screaming Confederate... Con uh, sleeping or not sleeping? I mean, were they... Well, they, no, they, they weren't... They, I mean, the, the, the newspaper reports that they were, said that yeah. they were caught sleeping in the tents and mm -hmm. they were soldiers were bayoneted in the tents. That was newspaper reports. It wasn't true. <laughs> That's right. Because uh, uh, there was a... A, a Union colonel named Peabody, 
who was very, he, he believed some of these reports believed, about the believed, Confederates right. out yep. there. He was commanding a brigade, and he sent out a scouting detail at dawn, even before dawn, on the morning of April 6th. And they ran into uh, skirmishers from a Mississippi regiment and got involved in a very noisy firefight out in front of Prentice's division, which alerted Prentice and in turn alerted Sherman, although Sherman still didn't believe that he was going to be under, uh, under a major attack, but at least he, had, uh, he was out there in front to see what's going on. So that when the Confederate attack came, uh, there was, had, been, had been partial mobilization, if you will, by the Union forces, but they were, it still came as a complete surprise. Right. And in fact, Sherman uh, was out there uh, with uh, his orderly, uh, an aide, uh, and when the Confederates launched an overwhelming attack, and Sherman, I think, said, my God, we're attacked. We're attacked. <laughs> and, uh, and his orderly next to him fell dead from a Confederate uh, shot. And that convinced Sherman that, in fact, there was, <laughs> was an attack. There was more to this than he had anticipated. Yeah. And this, so, is all, this is all happening at about 6 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. As we move later, we have the big fight at the hornet's nest, right? Yeah. Which is what this is. is uh, maybe just back, road, maybe back up a little bit. Something <coughs> struck me uh, just listening to what Jim said. When, when they were choosing that location, the Union, uh, one of the things that Sherman said to Grant, and you have to kind of picture this, and um, if, if the Tennessee River is running over here, there is the Snake Creek and Owl Creek kind of runs around this way, and then there's Lick Creek down here. But the, the point I'm getting at is, is what you have, you have on either flank of the, or the, of the Confederates, you have water. And the idea is there's an opening and so the Confederates come through that opening, and the idea is they're supposed to push the Union troops to the left, which, uh, which doesn't, doesn't happen. But one of the reasons it doesn't happen is, I think, because of the, the formation that uh, Albert Sidney Johnson chose. He chose a formation that was three lines, one right behind the other, and they were going to push through that area, the idea was that there was supposed to be more pressure put on the right or what would be the, uh, the Union left, and it doesn't happen because that formation might work on a nice parade ground, but in that wooded terrain with all the water and, the, and everything else, uh, it just doesn't work. And so what happens is those three lines break up, they come together, People are not being commanded by their particular officers, et cetera. Same thing happens on the Union side. But Sherman has insisted that this water on the flanks will serve as a defense for us. They won't be able to flank us on either side. Well, it didn't work out that way because they were still able to flank on that, uh, on that one side. And uh, uh, it, it, it didn't work as a, uh, as a good defensive position. It worked as a trap, really, and caught the Union troops. But imagine if the Confederates had used some sort of formation where they put more pressure on their right. Uh, I, it struck me one time, I just looked up Jomini's book, you know, the famous book, and Jomini was the, the great thinker of the 19th century and came to military ideas, 
and he had a particular way of doing things and all. He even had something like 15 or 20 model diagrams of battle, how a commander should set up his troops. Guess what? One of the models was that three, three flank, a three rather, three line formation, which looks good on paper, but it, I, it was a terrible mistake by the. Well, government. it was actually not Johnson's idea either. It, that's right. It was right. Beauregard. Beauregard. That's right. Right. Uh, right. Drew up the battle plan. Uh, Beauregard had a great reputation in the Confederacy at this stage of the war for tactical genius because right. he had uh, he, was, he took credit. For and was given credit for winning the first battle of Manassas or Bull Run. Uh, and Beauregard was very much a student of Germany. Yes, he was, that's right. Uh, yep. and, the, and not only the, the problem that you mentioned with this formation, but uh, another problem with it was that the Confederate Army had organized itself relatively uh, informally into four corps. Yes, right, yeah. Um, and each of these corps was to be in one of the three lines, and then the fourth would be in reserve. So you had the, the, the um, it was uh, Hardee's Corps was the first one to go in. Uh, and uh, then I think it was Polk's Corps and Breckenridge's was the one in, in reserve. So you have one corps covering the whole front of the attack and then another corps behind it covering the whole front. So that by the time the, the troops got involved in fighting, um, they were all mixed up, mixed, yeah. and the Confederates were having to, you know, various brigade commanders were not under their own co division commander or their own corps commander. It was, uh, and Beauregard, it was Beauregard's uh, response, Beauregard deserves the blame for this because mm -hmm. I think that very much did handicap the Confederate yeah. attack. It, it gave it a lot of weight at first, but it also created enormous confusion, confusion once yeah. the fighting got hot. So yeah. how do we get to this point? We've got to advance the battle a bit to the... Oh, if yeah. We, if we're going to get finished with a day and a half more in the next 15 minutes. <laughs> get this battle going. Uh, you want to talk about man. that? or I'll, I'll, whatever, whatever. This is a prang print, by the way, from the collection here. Uh, well, well, I'll say something briefly, yeah. and then you can, you can come in on it. The, the, uh, part of the Union defense in front of uh, Prentice's division was along a farm road which became known as the Sunken Road. Now, I've been to Shiloh several times, and I've walked over that road. It's really not very not sunken. Not very sunken, no. But I, was there I think uh, yeah. It, yeah. it got the name of the Sunken Road after the war because the soldiers who fought at Shiloh after the war read about the famous Sunken Road at uh, Antietam, mm -hmm. Bloody Lane, and the famous Sunken Road at Fredericksburg, and they said, hey, we've got to have a Sunken <laughs> Road, road, too. too. <laughs> <laughs> so they talk about the Sunken Road, but... Uh, it became known as the hornet's nest because as the fighting developed during the course of the morning uh, on April 6th, uh, the Confederates managed to bend back both Union flanks. They didn't break through, but they did bend back both Union flanks. Uh, but along that sunken road in the center, the resistance was very fierce, and that drew most of the Confederate attackers to that sector of the battlefield, uh, and they launched, I don't know how many attacks across an op open right. field there yeah, against yeah. that defensive position. But it's called the hornet's nest because of the bullets. The bullets, yeah. The yeah, yeah, those, yeah, it was called the hornet's nest because the soldiers said it sounded like a, you know, a horde of hornets. The yeah, like somebody had tipped over a, yeah, a, yeah, a hive. Yeah. Yeah. And so some of the most intense fighting 
that involved parts of three Union divisions, not just Prentice's division were there. Hurlbut's division and uh, um, a part of Wallace's division were there too. Um, not Lou Wallace, not the, we'll, we'll talk not about Lou Wallace. Maybe we'll get to Lou Wallace. There were two, wall, two uh, Union division commanders named Wallace, which also creates some confusion. That's, yeah, it's almost helped. as bad as a Confederate mix-up to have the... But only Wallace. one of them rode Ben-Hur, so we know yeah, right. <laughs> which one he was. Well, the, the other one The died. other one was killed at So he couldn't ride Ben-Hur. No, he ride. couldn't ride. Anyhow, that, that position in the Union Center held out for hours. Is that Hickenlooper? Is that what his name is? The guy well, with the sword? Well, that's where Hickenlooper's yeah. battery was, somewhere in that area. I think he's the guy with the sword. That, it's probably yeah. right. Yeah. Leading the Yeah. Defense. But, uh, you know, one of the interesting things for, as historians look at this, they look at the hornet's nest, and, and, and for a long time it was the idea that Prentice had held out, he'd bought time for Grant to set up the final defense perimeter, but at the time, interestingly enough, Sherman and some others said that was a mistake, that what happened was he should have fallen back and maintained the Union line. That would have prevented him from being encircled and the Union troops losing on, on over 2,000, uh, I think it was 2,000. About 2,500. Yeah. So well, eventually the Confederates overran this. Overran position. the they, thing, they, right. They did actually flank it. Yeah. They, they trapped a lot of these guys who were in right. the painting here. And about 2,500 of them, including Prentice himself, yeah, who uh, surrendered and, and William H. C. Wallace was killed. Well, Prentice even said when he was captured, uh, he, he was taunting the Confederates and saying, uh, yeah, maybe you're doing okay now, but wait till tomorrow. He had no idea what was going to happen yeah. to tomorrow, but that's, he was so, going to give so, a hard time anyway. Um, and by the way, if, the, if, you, if any of you have any questions, this would be a good time to begin lining up at the microphone as we move here to the end of the first day, but important, fateful things happen. I mean, Grant is shot at and has the piece of his scabbard of his sword broken. That could have been a big change had that bullet found a truer path. And Albert Sidney Johnston, of course, is uh, shot in the leg and really just sort of bleeds out in his boot. Right. Yeah, the bullet severed an artery, but yeah. he didn't realize and it. And he didn't realize, realize it. it, yeah. And he says to the medics, help the other guys, basically, help the soldiers. And so uh, six inches more and Grant is dead, and with proper medical attention and taking off his shoe, Johnston lives. So the war actually is a lot of, it's a well, that's, moment when it, yeah, the war get, could have been quite different. Well, you're giving, you and Jefferson Davis would agree on that, I think, that... Uh, you know, if Albert Sidney had only lived, then it would have been a I'm taking I'm taking Davis's part for the purpose of I a discussion. <laughs> right, right. And, no. then, and then Grant surveys with Sherman, right? This is the, my favorite moment of this yes. battle, particularly because it's over for a while. Tell us about the story about what, what, oh, what Grant says. When yeah. Sherman says, we took a licking. It's, a, it's about 11 o'clock that night, and... Uh, Sherman has been busy on the battlefield. He's, he's been shot uh, in, in the hand. He's wearing a sling. He, he's got blood over him. He's, he's muddy, dirty. And he wants to know what Grant is going to do the next day. And he believes that Grant is going to have to retreat. So he comes up to Grant. Grant is standing in what today is the cemetery there at Shiloh under a tree. And it's rain is pouring down. He's got his collar up. He's got his hat pulled uh, pulled down, and Sherman is going to say to him, 
well, what are your plans for pulling back? And then uncharacteristically, something told Sherman to keep his mouth shut, which didn't happen very often. <laughs> so he walked up to Grant and he said to, uh, said to Grant, well, we've had the devil's own day, haven't we, Grant? To which Grant responded as only he could in as few words as possible, lick him tomorrow, though. And the next day they went on the, went on the attack. We should finish up the first day before the questions. Uh, after um, the Confederates captured 2,500 Union troops and Prentice had bought time for Grant to set up a final line along the ridge line coming up from Pittsburgh Landing where he put up, uh, put a, uh, gathered together, I'm not sure how many guns, but well, yeah. 30 or 40 yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, cannons along the top there. And he also formed what was called a straggler line. When the initial attack hit the Union forces. Uh, many of the soldiers basically ran away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, ran back toward Pittsburgh Landing, sheltered, terrified. They were green. They hadn't seen combat before, a lot of them. Uh, they were, they were uh, exploded loose from their lines. Uh, when Buell's people came across, they claimed that there were 10,000 mm -hmm. Union, but that's an exaggeration, but there were several thousand. Yeah. Well, Grant actually managed to organize some of these into what he called a straggler line to support this artillery along the ridge. Right. And about five o'clock in the afternoon, Johnston has died now and Beauregard has taken over. Uh, the Confederates under Braxton Bragg, one of the division commanders, want to launch a final attack to break the Union line. Uh, but Beauregard says, no, uh, we're too uh, uh, disorganized, we're too cut up ourselves. Uh, there's a strong defensive position there. And ever since then, historians have debated whether Beauregard gave away a victory yeah. by, uh, Bragg thought so, uh, Jefferson Davis thought so, uh, by not launching that final attack. But the nighttime you, attack. If yeah. you go to Shiloh today, I think Beauregard made the right decision yeah. because the Confederates would have had to launch this attack uh, through a deep ravine, which was filled with backwater from the high right. uh, Tennessee River uh, called uh, Lick, Lick Creek, I think. Lick, uh, yeah. Uh, no, Dill's, 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 Dill's Branch. Dill's Branch. Dill's Branch. Dill's Branch. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I've walked down there and walked up the other side, and there wasn't a lot of water then. The river yep. wasn't right. high. You, and then you get to the top of the plateau there, and you've got 50 or 60 cannon facing you. I, I think if the Confederates had launched that attack, that final attack on Grant's final line, they would have been decimated. Yeah. Um, so I think maybe Beauregard made the right decision. Yeah. Well, and, let's, and, we, we really ha we have to get have some to of these down. questions. If we run out of time, the Union did better on the second day. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, we should have had, we should have split this up as we did our Gettysburg program. Yeah. The first yeah. and second day. Of course, the second day, most historians don't spend any time no. on the second well, we're day. Not, so we're certainly not going <laughs> yeah. to. You were first. <laughs> I, I was um, very, by the way, thank you for the excellent program, even if you only covered the first day. <laughs> uh, but I wanted to ask you about something you mentioned first early in the program, which was that Johnston, General Johnston 
as I believe most other Southern generals, were in the, in the Union Army, in the American Army, and they uh, left to go fight for the, against the American Army. What, if anything, this deals with the whole Civil War, what, if anything, did the North do to uh, prevent uh, these um, soldiers and officers? Today, if that happened, they, and they said, I'm resigning to go fight for the enemy, uh, they'd be put in irons. Okay, let's, well, let's tackle that. I, I was going to say one thing that, uh, uh, one thing that, that, that most people don't realize is that there were you know, West Point graduates and all, and the traditional myth is that most of them went to the Confederacy. Well, in actual fact, most of them stayed with the Union. The, uh, the ones who did go with the Confederacy were some of the well-known ones, like Albert Sidney Johnson, like Robert E. Lee. So we, we tend to concentrate on them. But I think uh, Lincoln and, and, and others uh, did try to convince these, all of them to stay with the Union truth. But it's the old issue of what's more important, the country or my state? And some believe that my state was... But no attempt was made to imprison them or prevent them from going? I mean, you mentioned, uh, with regard to Johnston, that he evaded uh, the northern people. Yeah. I mean, I think there was always attempts made on the battlefield to capture yes, but commanders. But, I mean, it's, it's, well, this, it's a time without precedent. It's not like going to a foreign enemy and fighting for a foreign enemy. This is the, the, our own country splitting up and people deciding that their loyalties lay elsewhere. But uh, it's, uh, efforts were made, campaigns were lodged, but there was also, as John says, a huge emotional attachment to family, family. villages and towns and states. Well, just, just to be sure you have it straight, um, all of the Southern generals who eventually, West Point graduates who went for the Confederacy first resigned their commissions in the United States Army. Right. So that when they decided to be become an officer in the Confederate Army, they were doing so from civilian life. Mm-hmm. So Even if it was a week. Technically, technically, okay. technically, there was no difference between a Southern officer who was a West Point graduate and a, a Southern officer who came from civilian life. But that's, of course, uh, a, techni- you know, a technicality. technicality Let's yes. go to our next uh, question. I, I read there's a lot of myths going on about Shiloh, professors. You mentioned about um, the sunken road that wasn't a sunken road. Um, the bloody pond, we didn't even talk about that. But about the uh, soldiers being bayoneted in their, in their tents, that wasn't true. Uh, I read a book um, about a myth by Timothy Smith, The Untold Story of Shiloh, and he mentions that General Prentice really wasn't the hero of Shiloh. And the two commanders that would say that he wasn't was Peabody and Wallace, and both of those people were killed. So I was just curious about your viewpoint. Was Prentice the hero of Shiloh? You know, that, that uh, yeah, that book has come out fairly, uh, fairly recently, and I, and I think it's fair to say uh, that the author, and I cannot remember his name, but he, he has a cause for uh, Lou Wallace, uh, particularly. And uh, so what, he, what he's basically saying is, is that, that Grant really unfairly put it to these people who really made the difference uh, in the battle. Uh, I don't buy it. Uh, I, I, don't think it, I don't think the argument holds true that Lou Wallace was a, a key figure in the battle. Yes, he did come. He finally made it uh, 
you know, he got lost. He went the wrong way. He went the wrong way. And uh, just to tell you very quickly the story, uh, Tim Smith, who some of you know, uh, is, is coming out with a, a new book on Corinth, which, uh, I mean, on Shiloh. It's going to be terrific. But when he was a ranger, uh, uh, he, he, did his book, he did his dissertation, actually, on the formation of the Shiloh National Military Park. And one of the things they did is they brought back all these veterans in the 1890s. Now, where were you when this happened? Where were you when this happened? Where were you when this happened? So they brought Lou Wallace back. Guess what? Lou Wallace got lost again. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good story. But by then he had written Ben Hur. But, but he's written Ben Hur. National celebrity. Like, yeah. <laughs> Sir. Okay. Uh, can the case be made that the divisional commanders in the uh, Federal Army should have been court-martialed? Uh, Sherman, Prentiss, McLaren, the two Wallaces, well, WHL Wallace anyway, um, for... <laughs> Uh, the way in which troops were deployed prior to the battle, failure to fortify, failure to process uh, intelligence. Uh, there were numerous instances where from captured Confederates, from civilians, from observations of their own troops, uh, that uh, they just uh, failed to, pr to process the intelligence. And in, with Prentice, when he was captured, he gave, is my understanding, he gave troop strength uh, in addition to making the boast of what's going to happen tomorrow. So should not these people have been court-martialed? Provocative question. Who wants to Jim, I Well, I, I, do I the don't think that division commanders should have been court-martialed. Uh, if anybody <laughs> should have been court-martialed, uh, at least so many newspaper reporters at the time thought, it should have been Grant. Uh, I was going to take issue with uh, something that Harold said at the very opening today, uh, that... Um, <laughs> no. Uh, the anniversary of Grant becoming general-in-chief in March 1864, uh, and part of the reason that Grant uh, became general-in-chief was because of Shiloh and other victories. Mm -hmm. But in fact, Grant, um, Grant's reputation suffered a, a real blow mm -hmm. as a consequence of Shiloh, and he was in much disrepute for a while. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I would argue that one of the things that Lincoln deserves a great deal of credit for as commander-in-chief is that he maintained his faith in Grant, mm -hmm. despite enormous pressure after Shiloh to get rid of him because he was, uh, because he was surprised at, at Shiloh and because of the, the, the points you made about uh, just the, the Union Army was spread out in a number of different camps for the convenience of the campsite and not for defense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and but it's he was almost overwhelmed. One of the reasons, I mean, one of the reasons we chose Shiloh as a, as a subject for one of our great battles uh, uh, series is that it was the biggest battle in the history of the continent at that Up point. to that time. Up yeah. to that time. Uh, exactly. As, uh, um, I'm looking at the numbers here, 3,500 killed, 24,000 killed, wounded, and missing on both sides. Nobody had ever seen anything like this. Well, even if it, another statistic that really kind of grabs your attention, uh, the Confederates lost 24% casualties, 24% of those that went into battle. The Union troops, is more debatable, it depends which number you use, but theirs was 20%. So that includes Buell, though, too. If you take includes, just Grant's army, it was higher it, than it that. It was higher than that, exactly. That's why I say it depends which way you do the statistic. But let's just say it's 20%. Let's just say it's 24 That's enormous. It's enormous. That's just unbelievable. Listen to this quote by Grant, which I always 
site. It's an amazing bit of observation. He, it's about Confederate casualties, not his own. But he says, I saw an open field in our possession on the second day over which the Confederates had made repeated charges the day before, the first day, so covered with dead that it would have been possible to walk across the clearing in any direction, stepping on dead bodies without a foot touching the ground. That was said about several places, the cornfield at Antietam, the wheat field at Gettysburg. But not by, it, not by Grant. Not by Grant himself. <laughs> by that, Grant, yeah. that, that, be, that by the end of the war had become a kind of cliche uh, to describe the carnage of several of these battles. I don't think it was literally true. Let's see if we can get our final questions in. I'm Jim Pasinich, a docent here. My question is the effect of Shiloh on the war. Didn't Shiloh destroy the myth, both in the South and the North, that this was going to be an easy, quick victory, and, and the reality hit home when they saw the 24,000 casualties? Yeah, well, in fact, uh, you, you may remember that famous expression that there won't be, at the beginning of the war, there won't be enough uh, bloodshed in any war that may come, uh, enough to fill a, a lady's thimble. And uh, so sure, I mean, this, this was, this was the, the biggest battle up to that point. And it's debatable too, but uh, some historians, depending which statistics you use again, that there were more people killed at Shiloh, more casualties at Shiloh, than during the American Revolution, the War of 1812, and the Mexican War. So it was. It was a phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal uh, shock to the system. Yeah. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Sir. Um, <clears throat> Albert Sidney Johnson was a uh, pretty aggressive general, arguably more so than Beauregard. Uh, if he hadn't been killed... Do you think that he would have uh, supported Bragg's uh, plan in the late afternoon to go against the uh, Grant's forces when they were backed up against the river? And if so, do you think there was any chance they could have been successful? I think if Johnson had lived, given what he had said the day before, I'd attack him if they were a million, we'll water our horses in the Tennessee River, that he might well have uh, supported Bragg's uh, desire to make one final attack, yeah. But I, I personally, yeah. having, having walked that ground, I don't think it would have been successful. We did, Gene and I, my wife and I walked that with Tim Smith, and you're right, I mean, there's, it would have been crazy. Mm -hmm. It would have been absolute lunacy to have made that final, final attack. Because it is, it's literally like this. And when, uh, Jim said, you come up there, and then what would you see, all those cannon? It'd be, it'd be Does awful. that say anything about Bragg? We have, to, we have to close. So yeah. we, um, we promised there was a second day. Um, Grant emerged with his force, if not his reputation, intact. But Shiloh, uh, just to conclude, in a way taught Grant to remain on his toes and um, never back off a fight. It taught him that being on the offensive mattered. Certainly taught Lincoln as much, too. Think that in just a few months he's begging um, George McClellan on, in the Eastern Theater to be more aggressive, to act, to strike a blow. In Grant, Lincoln did not have to worry about influencing someone or begging someone to strike a blow, only about sacrificing blood. Um, Grant would act without being prodded, try and stop him. Um, his contemporaries and history alike would debate the question of whether he was prepared at Shiloh, but we know what happened. Um, and as Lincoln put it around the same time, a few months later, the war could not be prosecuted with elder squirts 
charged with rose water. Um, um, he was prepared to do, Lincoln was, all he could, use all available means to save the government. It was both his sworn duty and his personal inclination. And that included going broke with Ulysses S. Grant. So we hope we've given you a taste of this transformative battle. Um, we can talk more about it outside. If you buy books, you get to hear about the second day. Um, <laughs> we hope you've answered your questions. Um, if not, the New York Historical Society has asked us to pick up where we left off and talk about Fredericksburg very soon. So thank you all very much. <laughs>